Hello and welcome to Cocktails, Mocktails, and Crime. We're your hosts, Jill, Gracia, Dave, Don, and Steve. And today we're bringing you a special episode where we're all remote. So this could be really fucked up episode or it could be really amazing and we'll have a whole new format. Who knows? Um, but Gracia, we didn't really talk about a cocktail or a mocktail of the week. So are you drinking something today? Sauvignon Blanc. <laughs> Pinot Grigio. Anyone else have a drink in hand? Merlot. I'm going, I'm going version tonight, so. And Dave's got coffee. Nice. Black coffee. Oh, nice. Black like your soul. <laughs> oh. Okay. So um, tonight, before we get too far into it, uh, into the story we're going to tell, is I just want to bring up that today in my Twitter feed from TSFU, the podcast, they put out a tweet about young sex workers who started turning up brutally murdered in Fall River. So I just want to throw out there that Fall River is like the worst place in the world. I feel like there's like a gateway to hell there. <laughs> it's like in the Bucky episodes with those like the hell mouth. Yes, exactly. The hell mouth is in Fall River because that's really <laughs> fucked up. And it actually goes on to say, was it the work of a satanic cult or a game of telephone gone wrong? Like, I mean, I've played telephone before, but it's never that, resulted that in... That sounds like something the Fall River police would come up with. <laughs> <laughs> it's a damn cell phone reception. <laughs> Not anybody else. It's just the cell phones, guys. Yeah. He said buy pizza, but I heard kill the bitch. And <laughs> <laughs> love Fall River, gotta love them. But it, um, it's the traffic. If you if you ever drive there, it's like no kidding, you're gonna go insane. Like yeah. it, it's like Kelly Square every fifteen feet. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. That is Fall River. I'm still getting us those shirts because they were so fun. <laughs> Those shirts were fun. <laughs> yep, and we'll have to do a picture in them for sure. Um, all right, so on to the real story for tonight, uh, which is the story of Holly Pranian. Um, oh, we've set this one up nice. <laughs> it's not my fault that Fall River is a bunch of douche canoes. How's that? Canoes. <laughs> That's a good word. Of course, now we're showing our faces to all the thrill kill cults that are in Fall River, too. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it could be kind of scary for sure. All right. Okay. So tonight we're going to talk about um, Holly Perinian, uh, who is a little girl from Sturbridge. And Frederick Nietzsche once said that hope in reality is the worst of all evils because it prolongs the torment of man. And before starting this podcast, I'm not really sure I understand, I would have understood what that meant. In stark contrast, we generally hear as long as we have hope. And you guys remember, like Obama ran on a campaign of hope, right? So it's supposed to be some kind of shining light in the darkness. Um, but now kind of after looking into the story and feeling the palpable pain of this family still almost 30 years later, I know a lot better. Uh, and this story really underscores the brutal reality of what Nietzsche was trying to convey with that quote. Um, I have to warn you all, including you guys here and all of our listeners, that this is probably the worst story we've told on this podcast so far, and it may be the worst one that we ever tell. Um, it involves an evil, like a pure evil. The impacts of this crime are raw wounds still felt today, some 28 years later, as though it occurred yesterday. 
many times as I was researching this, I wanted to stop. And there was many times where I went to Craig and said, maybe I should pick something else because this is really too hard for me to tell. But then I realized that I owe it to Holly and her family to try to tell her story and hopefully help them find the closure that they so desperately need. Uh, for what it's worth, her family is still hanging up flyers to this day in grocery stores asking for help solving this murder. So it really is very raw for them, very fresh, even though it's so, so long after the crime. So Holly was a beautiful girl. She was born on January 19th, 1983. She lived in Grafton with her parents and her two younger brothers. In the summer of 1993, Holly, her dad, Rick, and her brothers, Zach and Andy, went to South Pond in Sturbridge to visit her grandmother at her cottage. On August 5th, 1993, Rick would take his kids onto the water after breakfast for swimming, fishing, like normal kind of summer stuff. Um, and then when they get back from that, Holly, who's 10 in 1993, takes her brother, Zach, who's five, for a walk up the dirt road uh, where the cottage is to Allen Road, which is a paved road. So I feel like we've all kind of been in these um, kind of like summer camping communities, right? So, you know, you have like the main road and then there's all these like little off shoots that go out to little cabins or trailers or something like that um, where people spend their summers. So that's kind of like the setting of where they were. Yeah, Sturbridge and Charlton and, you know, there's a lot of them too in Maine and throughout, but yeah, there's some nice ones out in that area. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there are. And I, I've not been to this one, but Sturbridge is a nice area. So I'm guessing this, yeah. this one probably is pretty, pretty good. Um, so the reason why Holly and Zach go up the road to find this paved road is because there is a house um, on the corner of the paved road and the, and the dirt road that have puppies, these like little collie puppies. And every day around noontime, they'd let their puppies out into the fenced yard. So the puppies could like go to the bathroom and have lunch and all that stuff. And if they, Holly and Zach would go watch. And if they were lucky, the owners of the puppies would like be like, Hey, come on in and play with our puppies. So this was like a purely innocent thing that these kids would do. And they just loved it. And they looked forward to it every day. Um, and so it was a very regular thing that they did. So, but on this day in particular, um, Zach, him and Holly would wait for the puppies and then Zach would get bored or hungry or something like that. He doesn't really remember because of course he was only five, um, but he would head back to the cottage. So he gets back and he goes inside and, you know, it's just kind of a normal day there. Rick is watching television. Rick's a dad again, just to remind you. And he sees Zach playing on the floor, right? And he's like, oh, hey, you know, what are you doing here? Um, where's Holly? And Zach says, oh, Holly's still up the street waiting for the puppies. So Rick's like, okay, well, Zach, go get your older brother, Andy, who's seven at this time. And, you know, go up and go on up and get Holly. And this is not out of the ordinary. This is really because it's lunchtime. It's almost noon. So dad's just like, you know, go find your sister, bring her back. We'll have sandwiches, whatever, you know, that kind of thing. Something we've all gone through as kids who go outside and play. Right. Yeah. Um, so shortly after 12, a man, like a bystander, would state that he did drive down Allen Road, which is the paved road, and he saw the Peranian boys there looking for something, but he didn't think anything of it, and so he just kind of kept driving off. Um, but there was no Holly, right? So this is 
within minutes, right? So the boys go up there, don't find anything. There's a witness that says they're looking, but they, they just don't find anything. Um, the man in the car said, you know, it's probably not unusual. So he doesn't try to stop and help or anything like that. There's no sign of a struggle. There's no sign of anything, you know, panic or anything like that, right? So the boys return back to the cottage within a few minutes and they're like, um, dad, we don't know where Holly is, but we found her one shoe that was there. And then Andy, who's seven, uh, apparently said to Rick, Holly has been taken. Now, I don't know, you know, if that's true or not, but um, obviously if they found one shoe there in the yard and no sign of Holly and no sign of a struggle or car accident or anything like that, like that's kind that's of- That's a remarkable statement for that young kid. Yes, Holly's been taken. Yeah. Do we know if that's accurate? Did he uh, actually say that? Yeah. So from all accounts, so a lot of my, I did a lot of research on this, but a lot of the information that I took was from a website called helpholly.com, which is put out it, by yeah. her family and some detectives that are trying to solve this case. And it's updated regularly. It was updated just a couple months ago. The so. thing I'm thinking, Jilly, if a, if a seven-year-old kid says that, mm -hmm. then he saw her taken. Well, the thing about that is that the seven-year-old, yeah, you know what? You might be right because the seven-year-old kid technically wasn't there with her watching the puppies, but maybe they were walking up the dirt road or something like that. And they saw something going on. Another, yeah, I mean, Go ahead, I'm Dad. sorry, David. Another possibility though, because when we were little and I, I was, a, I'm a little bit older than Holly Peranian. So I was born in 78. When we were kids though, they would constantly have like these little things where like, you know, it, it, I was in Upton at the time, you know, like the Upton police would come and tell you all about how you never go near strangers and, you know, mm -hmm. make this noise if ever a stranger comes, um, you know, comes near you, start going, oh, you know. Um, so it may be that, just the message had been planted by so many people in his head that that's a potential thing that can happen, that that was just the first thing he assumed. Well, yeah, that's a good point. One thing that was really interesting, kind of after the fact, when everybody was talking about why is there the shoe, but no sign of an accident, no sign of a struggle, um, is that the grandma came forward and said, you know, the kids were at a 4-H camp where they told them that if somebody takes you, you need to leave something behind to show where you've been, right? So there is, uh, at least grandma thinks or thought that maybe Holly intentionally left her shoe there to it's say, awesome. I was here, you know? Mm -hmm. And that maybe the brother who might've been at that 4-H camp too, recognizes that as a, as a message she was trying to convey. Yeah, just really sad, sad story. It is. Um, so anyway, after Andy uh, says this to Rick, Rick obviously flies into a panic, you know, or as much of a panic as a dad could be. But we all know that feeling of dread, you know, when you're a parent and you feel like something's happened to one of my kids. Um, Rick grabs the boys. He gets them into the car and he drives up the dirt road to Allen Road to the location where Holly should be at that intersection where the puppies should have been. Right. But again, there's no sign of her. He also notes that there's no indication of an accident either. He even says there's no tire marks on the street to say that somebody slowed down quickly. You know how they leave that burnout. Um, there's just nothing left there. 
So Rick starts checking everywhere he can think of. He goes into the house where the puppies live. He checks around that immediate area. They check like into the woods that are right there, um, that kind of thing. And when he doesn't find her pretty quickly, he flies back to the cottage and he calls the police to report her missing. And in a lot of our cases, you know, like the police, there's a delay or they don't take it seriously. But in this case, the Sturbridge police and the Massachusetts State Police get to Rick within minutes. So they take this very seriously. They respond right away. Um, and they om- almost immediately start this like massive search for Holly. Um, and the search involves like a lot. It involves helicopters, police dogs, cadaver dogs, civilian volunteers. They even get all the Boy Scout troops in the area involved. Like it's a, this is a full on like large it should always be handled. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's interesting because this is before. And you know, the group that's keeping this alive is made up of state policemen, ex-state policemen. Yeah. If you if you look at that that site you talked about earlier, Holly's site. Helpholly.com. Yeah. If if you look at if you click on who we are on that site, you're going to see a lot of ex-retired state policemen still on it. Yep, for sure. Gracia, were you going to say something? Yeah, I was going to say it's interesting that they were so on it because with Molly, which is later, they aren't, mm-hmm. which is which is kind of funny that like you think protocol would be protocol. You know yeah. what I mean? Molly's also two towns, two towns over, I think, Sturbridge to Warren. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't know. There, yeah. yeah. And Sturbridge is, I mean, this is going to sound stupid to say it out loud, but Sturbridge is a large town compared to Warren, you know. Yeah, so, yeah like, but where's the barracks? I was trying to figure out which barracks would have, because the same state police barracks would have like responded to both, right? So Spencer is right near Sturbridge, right? And they yeah. have a state police barracks. I think Sturbridge has state police, don't they? Yep. But yeah, anyway, the point is they they launch immediately a large scale effort to find this little girl. And it's commendable, the work that they did so quickly, to be honest, at a time when that didn't always happen, right? Um, but the sad reality is that they're not gonna find her. They're not gonna find her that day and they're not gonna find her in the many days that follow that they continue to do this search. Um, so it's really kind of kind of sad. It's been awful for the parents. I can't even imagine. Like I said, the, the hardest part for me with the story is that the parents are still hanging up flyers in grocery stores asking, do you know what happened to my daughter? 28 years later. In Barry, of all places, like in small towns, you know, for me, that's like, I just can't imagine what that must feel like, you know, I just I think they're from reading their website, Jill, I I think they, you know, obviously they know the child is gone. Um, They found the body and everything, but I think they just, they're looking for this closure, looking for justice. They're holding on. It's been so many years, and the more years that go by, the less likely justice is is going to come across right you're holding on to hope that holly is going to get justice and that's why i thought that quote by nietzsche was so appropriate was because it's perfect yeah it can really be so tormenting you know and i feel like it's so true yeah it goes out to these people you know it's just awful i have a friend who um her older brother was killed and her mother every single day still posts to this day and he would have celebrated his 40th birthday last weekend and he died in his 20s. Yeah. 
in college, but she, every single day she posted. I mean, she knows who killed him, but it was like a horrible situation. So where I was going to relate to this was she posts every single day for victim rights advocacy. So I feel like that's probably what they're doing too. Like there's so many of us that are in pain. Don't forget, you know? Um, not exactly. If you go to helpholly.com, you'll see they're really posting, trying. They, they really think, I don't want to get too much into it now, um, but they're really saying, if you, you must have saw something, somebody must have saw something. One of you knows the truth. One of you heard a conversation. Like that's really, you know, they're really holding on to hope that they're going to solve this murder. And uh, my you know, intuition, Jill, was that it was something that they've overlooked. It could be, but let's finish the story and then we'll get into you know, that kind of stuff. But that makes it so easy on you. Okay, go ahead. All right. So now what I want to do next um, in this is take you back to that day that Holly went missing um, to Allen Road at almost noontime. So y'all know where Holly was and her brothers were at almost noontime, right? They were at the lake with their dad. Then Holly and Zach went up to the house to see the puppies at this approximate time. However, there were two 16-year-old girls and they're staying in a house on Allen Road, which is, was about 200 yards from the house of the puppies and where Holly would have last been seen by her brother. These two girls are cousins uh, and their families are having a vacation together. So I told you this is like a camping area. You know, it's got like the place, the water and all kinds of stuff that people like to do. Um, so it makes sense that these two families are vacationing together, camping out, whatever, that kind of thing. Um, so the girls... They, these two 16 year old girls, they go walking down their driveway to get the mail. The mailbox is at the end of the driveway. So the, there's this like pickup, it's like driving down the road like this, right? And then it, here's our mailbox. And all of a sudden it slows down to what the girls describe as a walking pace. Um, and it approaches them. And the girls say that there's this man in the truck and he stares at them and their bodies in like a lewd way and one that like alarms and scares them. And so I know Grace and I are women, so we totally understand what this feels like. Um, I had this experience, by the way, last weekend in Reading, Pennsylvania, where I was walking down the street. It's very scary what men can do to women. Um, but anyway, they felt like he was going to jump out of their truck and grab them, which you know, that might sound crazy, but again, Grace, I'm sure you can back me up. This is not an uncommon sensation that women have when they feel very threatened by a man. It's like your sixth sense goes off or something like that. So pretty sure we've all had that feeling. Um, so as soon as they feel like that, they turn around and they book it back up their driveway to where their both their dads were. And now their dads don't see any of this because they're loading a boat onto their truck. So they're like totally paying attention to the chore that they're involved in. Um, totally not really watching their two 16 year old daughters check the mail because that's such a normal thing. Um, and then the girls, so like they get up to their dads and they're like, okay, we're okay. You know, we're standing with our dads and they watch the pickup just take off down the road. So they feel like they're safe. They calm down and then they head back down the driveway to get the mail because they still want to know what's in the fucking mail. Right. Um, turns out that the mailbox was totally empty, by the way, no mail that day. <laughs> and, um, so the girls start to head back up to their house when they see that the pickup truck has turned around and is coming back towards them. And as it approaches them again, it slows down again. So these girls are like, fuck this shit. And they run up to their dads. And then the pickup truck speeds up and it takes away and drives off down the road. 
Jill, did anybody else other than those girls see that truck? Not, I couldn't find any evidence of that in my research, no. Because in so many of these investigations, people after the fact come up with red herring stories. And when I heard this one, that would, would be something I would try to rule out. Because think of it, the, the perpetrator took a little girl. Why would he be interested in 16-year-old girls? MO is pretty tight in these things. Anyway. Well, it can be pretty tight, right? But when we get into the suspects, we'll kind of talk about how it's a little bit fluid between eight and 18 kind of thing. All right. Number okay. of suspects who are really fucked up, nasty individuals. So basically after this account encounter, uh, one of the two girls, like they're both like totally freaked out. Um, and so one of them, she goes to the bathroom, which is in the like upstairs level of that house that they're staying in. And the bathroom overlooks Allen Road. Um, and so she's in that bathroom and she's like, just like trying to calm down. And she states that she sees the pickup truck for the third time in the area. But she says that the driver is looking straight ahead and starting to accelerate as he drives away. So this is in the exact period of time that Holly goes missing, right? And the girls don't know whether or not they saw Holly. They don't remember. It was 200 yards away, but they were so engrossed by the pickup truck that, you know, that didn't occur to them. So we don't really know exactly the timing there. So what kind of bothers me about this is I think that it, it might've been the grandmother who picked up on this truck story yeah. and believes it to be true. If it's true, then yeah, that's great. But if it isn't, um, it's just it, it's just a red herring. It just you know. Yeah, I don't know. Distracts people. But anyway. Yeah, you you can never tell with those things, you know. Right. In every case. Yeah, a lot of people come forward after a fa after the fact with stories like this. Yeah. Well, and the thing but I would definitely want to nail it down. I'm sure the state police have looked at it, but yeah. But the thing is, this this grandmother, this family, they're looking for any straw, any string right. that can pull. You know, right. like they just want to know what happened to their baby. You know, right, right. On October 23rd, 1993, it was a very crisp fall day in Brimfield, Massachusetts. Now, Brimfield is right near Sturbridge. You could almost describe it as like a village of Surbridge, basically. Um, but there are five pheasant hunters out hunting with their dogs in the woods when they come across a skull and the partial remains of a small child. Yeah. 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 The state police arrive on the scene. So immediately they call the police. And so when the cops, the state police arrive on the scene, they find a small pile of clothes belonging to a child beside the remains of the child and one white shoe. Uh, and it is determined later that the remains belong to Holly. So I felt like I couldn't uh, tell this properly. I didn't want to re rewrite it or rescript it at all. So this is a quote from the website healthholly.com and it states the following about this discovery, quote, an autopsy and forensic examination of her clothing later established Little Holly had been stripped naked, assaulted by her killer or killers, murdered, and left completely exposed in the August heat to insects, forest animals, and the countless billions of microbes of decomposition. She was abused, 
killed and thrown away in the hope that she wouldn't be found and that no one would remember or care. Every part of that was wrong. She was found. And we do remember. We do care. Do you? End quote. So I feel like even that quote on that website that I said is updated very regularly. It, you can you can feel. Yeah, that's powerful. Feel. It's, it's, yeah, it's terrible. Yeah. This isn't this isn't something that happened 30 years ago to them. It feels like it's something that happened last week to them. You know, like there's a hole in their heart that's never gonna heal. Oh, it's awful. Isn't it? Mm. Yeah. So as with any unsolved case, there are always some suspects or persons of interest. Um, but in this case, there's not enough data to tie anyone specifically to the crime. Um, and in fact, in this particular case, there are three really good suspects. One that you'll be like, hmm, and then one that you can't completely count out, right? So now we're gonna talk about those suspects. So um, the first suspect, his name is Robert Arms. Uh, Arms was a day laborer in Sturbridge at the time of Holly's disappearance. He knew that area very well. And after the disappearance, he did things that can only be described as like super weird. So the first thing he did was the day of her disappearance or like really close to it, he immediately threw away his boots, ditched a car, bought brand new boots, like kind of weird stuff that he did. And then he went to the family and offered his help to search for her and to raise money. Um, and then almost immediately after that, so it's like he goes there and he's like, hey, how about I help you look? How about I help you do this? And then turns around and says to the police that they think he's a suspect. And then he goes to the press and says, hey, the police think I'm a suspect. Like, seriously, the police haven't said anything. And this guy's like, I told the police I'm a suspect and now they think I'm a suspect and um, I'm not involved. Just like that. Like, nobody does that. You know, if you've done a crime. Well, uh, haven't done certain kinds of psychopaths do do that. They try to join the investigation. They try to get as close as they can. So he, he, that makes him a real good suspect, Jill. A super good suspect, yeah. yeah. Also, there's a, like, try to show spend up. around the family, do you know? Huh? How much time did he try to spend around the family? It, they didn't really say. They just said that he almost immediately showed up offering to help. Because yeah. there's, there's like this malignant, narcissistic type of killer. Um, one of the girls that killed um, Skylar's niece um, actually <laughs> sat on Skylar's bed and cried with the mother. Mm -hmm. And it's like that malignant narcissist that just loves to see the pain that they've caused. Yes. Uh, and... You know, um, Charles Ng, for example, would actually send letters to his victims' families. Oh, gross. Um, it, yeah. It's why they have the police take a picture of the crowd, because mm -hmm. often killers are watching the police investigation. Yes. So no, it's, it's a very big no, thing no, to no. actually try to be part of it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's so gross. It's so gross. Uh, so police have been able to verify by the way that they have no idea where he was the day of the crime there are no there's no alibi or anything like that for him um and witnesses over the year has have said that he has made comments that link him to the murder um and also most interestingly about this guy number one 
is that he's pled guilty to sexually assaulting his own daughter. What a gem. That's sick. Yeah, fucking sick is right. Yeah. Okay. Um, So next on the guess which sicko might have done this list is a gentleman, I guess, named Randy Stanger. Now, you may remember his brother, Rodney Stanger, from the Molly Bish case that we covered a few weeks ago. Actually, it's episode one for us, I think. So this is his brother, Randy. They clearly come from just a fantastic family. Um, And he was living in a tent where Holly's remains were found. So that's a part of why they think it was him. Um, Say that again, Jill, that last thing you said. Where her remains were found. Yeah, so her remains were found. No, her remains were found in the woods, like by a tree in Brimfield. He literally had a tent set up where he lived, like right next to that tree. No kidding. Yeah. So that's where he was living at the period of time. Um, at the time that Holly's remains would have been clearly there and decomposing. Yeah. There's no way you would not smell a dead. Oh, yeah. He knew. (laughs) No, they're saying that, you know, at the time that she died, that's when his tent was there. So in August Uh of that year. Fucking gross. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And actually, on the day that Holly disappeared, he was one of the people that the police questioned. So they knew about him. He was on their radar. Um, Yeah. It sounds like these two gentlemen, these two individuals were really like future mayors of fall river kind of people <laughs> yeah clearly they must be from fall river or something like that i mean but yeah i mean because they they come up in the um holly peranian case too you mean the molly bish case Molly Bish case sorry. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean and wasn't one of them informing for the police or am i that's gary that's one of the brothers killed a woman. He's in jail in Florida for it. That's, That's right. Because she, because she talked to her sister in New England who implicated him. Mm-hmm. And when he found that out, he killed her. Yeah, so, that's Rodney, not Randy. In this case. No, I know that. But this whole family is just pristine. Oh. They're fantastic, yeah. They mm. probably go to church or something. Who wants to be a stranger? <laughs> <laughs> so, Next so what happened to show. the uh, what happened to the investigation into arms? Um, it just kind of goes cold. You can't because one of the hardest things about cases like this is if you don't have some sort of piece of evidence tying them to either the crime scene or the crime itself. You can't go before because it won't get through the grand jury. They're going to say you have to make a prima facie case here. You have to prove means an opportunity. So it's like and I feel for the police in cases like this, because I think if you ask the police in private, they probably know which one of these people did it. But it's like there's nothing we can do because we can't we can't if we could just get a murder weapon or something, you know. Or a piece of. I DNA. think in a lot of the cases we cover, David, that is the fact that they, they cops know, but there isn't enough there. There's yeah. just not enough, and they don't want to go forward with it because you never know. In ten years, they come up with a new 
sophisticated method of extracting DNA and maybe they can extract it from the clothes or something like that. True. And they could actually, you know, so, I mean, it, it would be nice if they could find DNA at that crime scene and at some point, you know, find out who did this. Oh, well, we'll get to the DNA that they found. Oh, okay. Um, but what's really interesting about Rand the Randy Stanger connection is that Boston 25 News reported that in 2005, Zach, who remembered that as a five-year-old that went with her to see the puppies initially, he started having flashbacks. And in those flashbacks, he felt like he kept seeing a man's face, although he it wasn't like anybody he currently recognized, right? And this is now 12 years later. So they bring in a sketch artist and they, you know, they get him to come up with the picture of the face and it's Randy Stanger. Zach recognizes from that day when his sister went disappearing. Even though photos of Randy were not seen by the family or Zach until 2009. So four years before he could have possibly seen the guy, he's having these visions in his head and they come out with this picture of Randy Stanger. Like that's mm. really, to me, yeah. you know, good evidence, I guess that at least that guy was around and might've known something. Um, Randy Stanger then has a lot of run-ins with the authorities because these are really great people. Um, and he ends up in jail for drugs. So that's where he is. So. Mm -hmm. And his brother's in prison in Florida for murder. So for there you go. His girlfriend or something like that. Yep. He's still he in jail. His girlfriend. I think he is still in jail currently. <laughs> yep. According to my research anyway. Mm. Okay, so the next person on the list is David Pouliot. Pouliot? Is that how you Pouliot. Pouliot. Um, he, a lot. Yeah, he's also been linked to Molly Bish. So Gracia covered him in our Molly Bish episode too. Um, he is not technically officially a suspect. However, there is forensic evidence at the site of where Holly's remains were found that links him to that scene. So... He died in 2003, um, but the only forensic or DNA evidence they have, which they haven't said what it is, it links. So we got two people linked to the scene through forensic evidence. Yep. One that lived in a tent near there. This guy, this guy, as I remember, though, wasn't he like somebody who was always in the woods and he like would like camp out for whole weekends? Well, so here's the thing. When they say that Randy Stanger... He lived in a tent. Don't say that he's connected via forensic evidence, but they do say that David Pouliot is connected via forensic evidence. So wasn't he also kind of like a nomadic guy, like where he would hang out in the woods? Yeah, I I think so. But to me, that that their willingness to say there's forensic evidence at the site of Holly's remains means there's something more than just coincidental in the area. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Yeah, they had something there. Yeah. yeah something. Something. This guy's a fucking sicko for sure. See, they anticipate the trials, as you said, with the grand jury and uh, David and what have you. But they know that it's beyond the reasonable doubt to a moral certainty. And they've got mm -hmm. to have a lot more than what we're hearing, I guess, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah. And then he does. That's so frustrating. He did Sorry. die in 2003, Gracia. Yeah. He does die. Mm -hmm. So that's a challenge too, because they can't question him. He died. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's hard. 
Okay, so the next guy on the on the list, this is the guy that I was like, it's going to make you go, hmm, or raise your eyebrows a little. His name is Lewis Lent. Um, Lewis Lent is a serial killer. He is well done. Yes. I almost brought him up. Okay. Well, I almost brought him up earlier when you were saying that he is the range. I almost okay. brought Lewis Lent up. That's yeah. so crazy. Yeah, he is a serial killer. Um, he's committed very, uh, very similar crimes between 1990 and 1993. At the time of Holly's disappearance, he was a janitor and he had access to a pickup truck similar to the ones that the girls saw um, harassing them. Um, his crimes were all committed between Western Mass and New York State across the border and on kids all around Holly's age. So he's not getting into the 16 and older kind of crowd, but they're all young children. Um, they were all sexually assaulted and murdered. And he is in jail for the rest of his life. So like Surbridge is a part of Western Mass because really technically anybody who doesn't know Massachusetts thinks anything West of Newton is Western Mass. But anyway, um, Surbridge is technically Western Mass. Um, and New York State, for those people who don't know, Massachusetts borders New York. So it's not even that far um, of a drive or anything like that. Uh, so I remember that he was being tried for both of the murders, uh, the little kid in Lee and the girl in New York. And at the time in Massachusetts, we had Governor Wells. And he wanted them to, be to try the New York case first because New York had the death penalty. And he wanted them to die for what he did to the kid. Because he, like, destroyed this kid. I don't know if you guys remember, but he, like, cut off the kid's penis. Oh, like, he, gosh. It was horrible. He, like, peed on the kid. Like, oh. when I was reading this case about, not this case, but the case that Lewis Lent got caught for in Lee, mm -hmm. it broke my heart to hear what he did to this boy's body. Mm. And the police proved it so... I thought right away, this guy was into like doing different things to kids for fun. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think so, girl. That's really sick. And, and I, I was kind of hoping at the time, like I'm not into the death penalty, but at the time I was, because as you guys remember, my political beliefs aligned with this kind of thinking. And I was hoping New York would have put him to death because I just don't think a guy who gets off on that kind of pain to children. Yeah. And you know, what else, you know what else he did that was worse was that he started saying like, he would tell them where he hid the bodies of Sarah and some of these other kids. And then he was like, Oh no, fuck that. I'm in jail for life. You, you people don't fucking need to know what happened. And he just stopped talking. He was fucked up. If anybody wants to like research him a little bit, he was a crazy man. And I remember, maybe I should do him at one point. I think he's still alive, girl. He is, because they didn't get the New York case. There was That's something right. that his attorney filed. So maybe I should do this one later. But because it really, I remember I was in college during this and it was insane. And I studied criminal justice for those who don't know that. And we were talking about it in our classes about how our governor was trying to get him killed. Yeah, it's disgusting. It was pretty interesting. It's so disgusting, I don't know. Anyway, the, the final 
And probably the most unlikely suspect, honestly, is Rodney Stanger, brother of Randy. Also, Rodney is brought up quite a lot in the Molly Bish disappearance. Um, but in this case, he's brought up for two reasons. One, his connection to Molly. Uh, and two, because when he went to jail for murdering his girlfriend in Florida, his trailer that they were living in together contained little girl items like barrettes and like hair clips that only little girls would use, not like teenage girls or anything. Other than that, there's absolutely no connection. So it's just kind of like a few kind of moment, you know? Yeah, he's creepy, definitely. Oh, for sure. It's so disgusting, guys. Even like, remember when we talked about him in Mali, he had like molested girls all the way to like Texas, right? Wasn't he the guy that like him and his girlfriend were like Bonnie and Clyde? Yeah, his yeah. girlfriend was doing it with them too, which oh, is really interesting. Yeah. And you know what's interesting about that is in our episode two, I can't remember who the guy was, the criminal in that, daddy probably remembers, but him and his girlfriend were going across the country molesting people also. Like, it's like a disgusting couple's event, I guess. It's kind of interesting because two personalities together form another personality. Also, True. Right? So like, Amen, right? True. Yeah. So sometimes that's part of the problem also. Not in the case of Holly. For sure. Loeb and Leopold, Bonnie and Clyde, David and Nathan. When I started this podcast today, I let off with how hope can be a torture. And I fear for this family... It's continuing to be, they are continuing to be tortured by the hope that someday they will be able to bring to justice the person or the persons who are responsible for this heinous act. I actually really hope so too. Holly is not forgotten. She's still loved and treasured by all that knew her. But if you, listener out there, anyone, if you know anything or you've heard anything or you think anything, then say something. Go to helpholly.com and finally help deliver closure to this family. Thank you for listening to us on this episode of Cocktails, Mocktails, and Crime. Be sure to subscribe in your favorite app so you don't miss an episode. You can also send us an email to Cocktails, Mocktails, and Crime at gmail.com. Or follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Cocktails, Mocktails, and Crime. Or Twitter at CMCrime1. See you all next week.